from the territories to Titan Towers to TNA and all points in between. He's seen and done it all. And now he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Now, Holtzberg. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? Well, Conrad, I was thinking the other day. Oh, God, I hate when you do that. Why have a Merry Christmas when you can have a Now, Holtzberg Christmas? Well, okay, there we go. I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking that. I'm not mad at that. Uh, let's talk about why I wanted to do the Zeus show. So I got a little heat this week on the internet. I hated Zeus. He just stood around and do nothing. He was a terrible wrestler. Some of you guys don't get the way this poll works. It's not a popularity contest. Um, you know, we'll talk about my rant on this, on this Friday show a little bit, but Zeus is not fascinating to me because he was my favorite wrestler. Zeus is fascinating to me because they did something nobody had ever done before. You see, this is the precursor for WWE studios. And you might say, well, I don't care about WWE's movies. I get that. Vince forever has not wanted to be in the wrestling business. If you remember that documentary that aired in the late nineties, he said, I'm in the movie business as he's chugging his bottle of water. We make movies. That's what he's always perceived what the WWE to be. So this was his first foray into it. And instead of making Hulk Hogan a movie star or The Rock a movie star or John Cena a movie star, he thought, hey, let's reverse engineer this and let's make a movie star a wrestler. It's fascinating to me that they did this, when they did it, how they did it, and I want to know more about it. But first, let's talk about the man who played Zeus. It's Tommy Tiny Lister. Uh, Tiny, of course, is for funsies because the dude is 300 pounds and six foot five. He was born blind with a detached and deformed retina in his right eye. Uh, it's a miracle. He could probably even catch a ball. Am I right, Bruce? No. If he was that talented. If he was Roulette, he would be a miracle. Uh, he, he did shot put and he won the 82 NCAA division two shot put championship. He tried out for the USFL. It didn't really work out. He got into acting, uh, prior to doing this movie, uh, with the WWE, he did some other stuff that you may be familiar with all the way back in 84. He played a football player, uh, on Webster. He was on another show. You've probably heard of perfect strangers in 87. He did Beverly Hills Cop 2 in 87. And then, maybe more famously than all of this, and I don't know why I find this so ironic, he was on the HBO football comedy First and Ten. And considering we just did an XFL episode and Vince's obsession with football being more fun and the reality aspect, I find it hilarious that the lead star in his first movie was also one of the main characters on a football HBO show. Did you realize that was the case, Bruce? I did not. But it's kind of interesting. Hell, we should have talked about him last week. When did you uh, first become aware that Vince had the idea, or the itch, rather, to do a movie? 
probably around November of 1987-ish. And he mentions this in a big meeting or just in passing? Or when do you know, oh, fuck, he's serious? When we were discussing Hogan dropping the championship and the fact that he would be taking the majority of the summer off to go and film a movie and the movie would be no holds barred produced by the WWF and, and Vince, but also going out and getting folks out in Hollywood to produce direct and all that other good stuff. But the first time I heard about it was when we talked about Hogan losing the championship and taking the summer off. And so that ultimately happens, as we know, uh, and a lot of people wanted to know why Hogan wasn't in the prime spot at WrestleMania 4. Well, now you have your answer. Uh, they use this to develop the Mega Powers friendship, tell the story for what would be the return match at WrestleMania 5, uh, you know, the payoff of this friend versus friend turning into friend versus foe. And the Macho Man gets the top spot in April of 88 with the understanding Hogan's going to make a movie. Uh, now, we talked about it briefly on the steroid episode, which is available in the archives and probably one of our more underrated uh, shows. If you are thirsty for all things, something to wrestle with, go check out the steroid episode. The movie was filmed in Atlanta. Do you remember why Atlanta got the nod there? Because it seems kind of funny that this is, of course, right where Turner is. Simply being at the time, and probably still today, Georgia being a very film-friendly and television-friendly state, given a lot of breaks, tax breaks to production companies. That's why a lot of stuff is still done there. And uh, even like Louisiana, they just were very, very Co- friendly. To cooperative, yeah. Yes. Um, in the steroid trial episode, it comes out that that's the first place that Hogan and McMahon had a conversation about essentially sharing steroids. Uh, and I find that of any sort of relevance because when Lister did an interview with Rosenberg recently, uh, he said that they gave him three months, two or three months to get ready for the movie. And he went from 285 to 305 in the process. So he put on 20 pounds of muscle in that two or three months. How prevalent do you think steroids were to the WWF at that time? I would say probably they were very prevalent at that time. They were prevalent in the business all over the place. So yeah, it was, it was a time that guys definitely were using a lot of steroids. Let's talk more about the introduction of Lister Uh, He mentioned in that same interview with Rosenberg that uh, he does an audition for the role. He says the audition called for a black guy. And I want to get his quote right here. He says, quote, because, you know, a black guy and a white guy fighting makes more money than a white guy and a white guy fighting or a black guy and a black guy fighting, end quote. Do you remember that being a critical part of the story? I know visually it, it does a contrast, but do you think Vince wanted to play on certain prejudices uh, in the United States about white versus black. I have no idea. I've never heard that. You just brought it up. The idea was to create a monster heel for Hulk. The idea originally always was 
to create a monster heel on screen, on the big screen, and then bring them into the world of the WWF is a threat to Hulk. So uh, Lister says when he came in for the audition, he came in as Zeus. Uh, he prepared himself. He had heard that Hogan was 6'5". He himself is 6'5". So he wore gimmick shoes to be taller. He wanted to be like 6'7". So he'd be just a little taller than Hogan. And he painted a Z on his head. Of course, for the movie, he would actually grow the hair out. But he just painted it. And he put black uh, electrical tape around his wrists. And he did about 100 push-ups in the bathroom before he walked in. Took his shirt off, covered himself in baby oil, and when he walks in, he's 6'5", 285, uh, jacked up, and taller than Hogan. Hulk and Vince are sitting there at the audition. Uh, Vince looks at Hogan and says, that's Zeus. When do you remember hearing, they got the guy? Do you remember? I, I really don't. I just remember that you know they they had a cast, and they had a big nasty heel on screen. And eventually we were going to bring him in. Now, kind of one off. There was, there was, well, I say there was never. There was never really any thought to bringing Zeus in for more than a one off or, you know, a a couple of deals off. Obviously, if he had been a little bit more athletically inclined and picked the business up, I'm sure we definitely would have used him. However, it was always just the thought of we're going to get a you know run or two out of this, get a couple matches out of it in our world, and move on. Um, so let's talk about the movie for a minute. It was directed uh, by a guy named Thomas J. Wright, and uh, before doing this, he did a couple episodes for The Twilight Zone, uh, three episodes for Max Headroom, uh, one episode of A Fine Romance nine episodes of Beauty and the Beast. And then he does No Holds Barred. Uh, After that, he went on to do some other stuff you've probably heard of. Uh, The Highlander comes to mind uh, as being one that a lot of folks would recognize. The X-Files, CSI, Alias, uh, Taken. He did lots of television shows that you're probably familiar with. Bones, Criminal Minds, Smallville, uh, One Tree Hill, Grey's Anatomy, Castle, NCIS, Supernatural. So lots of stuff. So he's been pretty active. Did you ever meet Thomas Wright? I did not. I didn't I didn't make it down to the movie set. That was the only people from a company, from, well, from the WWF, with the exception of a few of the on-air people like Howard Finkel and Gene and Jesse and those guys, uh, was Steve Taylor, who was our still photographer. And Steve was, was out on the set. He was the photographer documenting everything for the movie. So let's talk about the way it was written, because now the WWF relies much more heavily on scripting than they did back in 1988 and 89. Would you agree with that? Yes. The script is written by Dennis Hacken. And prior to doing No Holds Barred, he did Wanda Nevada, some other stuff you've probably never heard of, and Bronco Billy, which is a Clint Eastwood movie. So he had written something under his belt, but man, it feels like No Holds Barred really fucked him up. He hasn't done a lot since. Uh, He did uh, a TV movie called Marked for Murder, and then he wrote uh, South of Heaven, West of Hell in 2000, and nothing really since. Uh, at least according to IMDb. 
Uh, but I'm curious, did this kind of give Vince an appetite for scripting? Because it feels like there was a big departure from the way things used to be. And now the way things are with so much scripting, if this didn't have a hand in it, what do you think did? Oh, I think that simply writers and copywriters and people that thought that they had better lines than the talent um, or what really got Vince into the scripted world. I, I don't know if it was this per se at all. Because nowadays it feels like, oh, if WWE is going to make a movie, well, they've got dozens of people on staff who could write. Why not just use one of them? But back then that wasn't the case, right? Correct. Yeah, we the talent came up with their own stuff and yeah, uh, Vince and Pat pretty much writing the TV at that time. So let's talk about, uh, the movie just for a little bit longer, because one of the things I've always been fascinated by is the decision to not call Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan. So what we have here, and this is very hard to follow for me as a man named Terry Bollea, who is portraying himself as Hulk Hogan, but he's not going to be Hulk Hogan in the movie. He's going to portray Rip, but we're not going to say that this is Terry Bollea as Rip. We're going to say this is Hulk Hogan as Rip. And we're not going to use the trademark red and yellow. We're going to use blue and white. What the fuck are we doing, Bruce? I don't understand the question. Well, it seems confusing to me. Why wouldn't you just call him Hulk Hogan and put him in red and yellow and make a movie? Because it wasn't a movie about Hulk Hogan. It was a movie about Rip. Hulk Hogan was playing Rip. Hulk Hogan is How a character. How hard is that to understand? Well, Tony Soprano wasn't Tony Soprano. He was James Gandolfini. So when James Gandolfini was in a movie, they didn't say, see Tony Soprano as whatever the new character name is. So? Can't help it if Hollywood got it all fucked up. Oh, my God. He would, hey, I tell you what, more people would want to see Tony Soprano doing shit than they would James Gandolfini. God rest his soul. Rest his soul, yeah. Yeah, because he was the man. Uh, help me understand. I, I don't follow. Why not? Why not just do red and yellow? I mean, this is the signature color by because this point. Because you got red and yellow. Hulk Hogan was there. You had red and yellow. You had an opportunity to create another another star, another name, more marketing. You do blue and white stuff with Ripem. It's different than red and oh, yellow. You got okay. So from a money play, from a merchandise play, let's sure. try to create Rip. And then instead of just red and yellow, let's go with America's favorite color, blue. And then we'll use blue and white and sell rip shit. Fucking A. Okay. I guess I can get behind that. <sighs> so in the movie, Rip Thomas is the World Wrestling Federation heavyweight champion, not Hulk Hogan. Rip Thomas. Is there a Thomas name somewhere in the McMahon family? I have no idea. Okay. I only ask because... This movie is being put out by what production company? Shane Productions. Shane Distribution Company is who puts this out. And I find that as an interesting little trivia note because prior to the WWE Studios, Vince's first production uh, company was called Shane Distribution Company. You going to give me anything on that? Shane's Vince's son. What's his daughter's name? Music company was uh, Stephanie Music. Is that a rib? No, it's not a rib. So the music the the music company, the movie division was Shane. Uh, I guess distribution. I thought it was Shane Productions, but 
the music was definitely Stephanie music. I did not realize that that was the case, that he had a music company and that's what it was named. Well, now you do. There you go. Uh, the, the music in the movie, any, you want to guess who did that? I know who did that. Jim Johnston did that. Boom. Jim no Johnston. No holds barred. Something like that. I thought it was he pretty sure awesome. Hell wasn't, huh? I thought it was awesome that the guy we all enjoy who did our wrestling themes also did the music here. Hey, you know what else he did? What's that? Spend my days working hard on the go, but hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Hi. Um, a couple other wrestlers appear in the movie that we should mention. Joey Morella was here as a referee. Uh, Howard Finkel was here as a ring announcer. Jesse Ventura is there as a commentator. Gene Okerlund appears as himself. Gene Okerlund. Bill Eady is Jake Bullet. Uh, he wrestles Rip uh, in the ring in the WWF. Uh, what's up with Jake Bullet? Why not just let him be superstar Bill Eady? Because he was playing a part. I just don't understand why it's you just. Role. Okay. Well, I don't understand why just because you say that he should have been Bill Eady that he should have been Bill Eady. It was a part. It was a part in a movie. It's a script. <laughs> okay, but Jesse Ventura's himself. Okay. Gene Okerlund's himself. Whoopie-doo. Howard Finkel's himself. Well, you can't. I mean, goddamn, Howard Finkel. Joey Morella's himself. No, Joey Morella was referee. They didn't announce Joey Morella. No, but I'm just saying they're all portraying themselves. Why, why can't Bill Eady... Who's also in the ring because he was playing Jake bullet. <laughs> okay. Uh, how the fuck is Stan Hansen in this movie? Okay. Once again, there was a part of mean ornery Texan and Stan Hansen was the guy that played that part and did it great. What was the line that he said in there? Where he's in the bathroom up there at the stall if you're not, if you haven't seen this, I want you to throw in your Google machine right now. Stan Hansen, no holds barred. And when you do that, you will get two video returns at the top of your Google machine. And the second one is titled, Bruce, can you tell us what it says? Tiny wangers. Um, how the hell is Stan here. Stan only worked for the WWF in like 76, 80, 81, like way before Vince was really on top. Uh, you know, in the meantime, though, he's working in Japan, AWA, WCW, everywhere but here. But he's on this show. Like, why wouldn't they use another WWF wrestler? What was his end? How did he get this gig? He and Hogan were friends, so okay. I'm sure Hogan probably suggested him, and why not? He fit the part perfectly. Tiny wangers. So in the movie, um, there is a guy who is referred to as Braille, and he's your lead heel. He's played by Kurt Fuller, and he is running the struggling World Television Network. And Braille wants Rip, and he wants him bad. He feels like this is the answer to all of his rating struggles and uh he's pitching a fit in the boardroom and showing posters and why can't we get this jockass and blah 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 and they have a famous scene 
where Hogan comes to a business meeting in full spandex. He's got the little cutoff finger gloves. He's got the spandex top with the sleeves cut out and some fringe. He's got the spandex uh, pants tucked into his cowboy boots. He's got the bandana. And I can't help but wonder how many business meetings that Hulk Hogan really go to dressed like this. A lot more than you'd believe. <laughs> That's how he dressed. What the fuck you want from me? So this is not Rip who, who dresses no, I was like. Because he was in blue. No, he's God in blue. You're not, you're not paying attention here, Conrad. He's in black and red there in that scene. Okay, well, black and red, you know. Uh, are you really saying that Hogan dressed like this? I'm like, if y'all are just going to go to dinner, that's his go-to? It has been, yes. I have been to dinner in, in, in total red spandex with yellow cowboy boots, yes. Like not not working. Oh, just tell so- me that if you fucking didn't have the body and thought you could pull it off, that you wouldn't wear just some like total like orange spandex and shit, maybe with a little bit, bit of purple accent. I I just you know Ric Flair doesn't go to dinner in a robe. He has. <laughs> well, he's probably in a different state of mind there. So in this scene where he's offering. Uh, this jock ass to come to his network. He offers him a blank check and he's kind of forceful with rip and rip takes the check and shoves it in Braille's mouth. Yes, he did. What came first? The million dollar man stuffing hundred dollar bills in his opponent's mouth or this check scene. I know what I know what aired first. But by the time this was filmed, did they think of this here? And then the million dollar, they say, hey, Ted, start doing this after the matches. Or how did that come about? No, the million dollar man was doing it before. Definitely a million dollar man was doing it before. And so they just borrow that idea from the million dollar man and use it here. When he, when he delivers this line, I won't be around to see this check clear. And then later after they kind of kidnap him on his ride home in the limo and he has to try to kick out the limo and put a bunch of dents in and then magically jumps through the sunroof like he's Rey Mysterio. Who's that jumping out the sky? H-U-L-K-H-O-G-A-N. Um, Boudicca, Boudicca. <laughs> he, um, he snatches the limo driver up by the collar. Do you remember what he says? Can you recreate that for us? What's that smell? When I saw that scene recently, after you had been doing your Vince McMahon impression for me, I can't help but think that Vince is off camera. And approaches Hogan and coaches him up on how to make this scene work. What might that sound like? Goddamn, pal. (laughs) You grab him. And you get him by the collar. And you squeeze. And right about this time, he shits his drawers. And you... Get a big whiff. Get a big whiff. And then you look him in the eyes and ask, 
What's that smell? <laughs> All he can say is Dookie. And you look at Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Back to one-on-one, pal. I didn't realize until you just did that impression that Vince McMahon is actually Cobra Commander on G.I. Joe. I know that no, makes no sense to you, but I it does. I don't know who that is, but okay. It does to a few of us. So uh, <laughs> there's so much of this that's wrestling like in hindsight now. It's a movie about wrestling. Well, of course it's wrestling. Here's what I mean, though. Brill. Oh, hey, fuck you, pal. I'm trying to make a point. Oh, jeez. We're getting into the fuck you's an awful lot in this show. Fine. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. How's that sound? Okay, double fuck you. I wish you were here now so I'd fucking punch you. Go for it. (laughs) I forgot, Mr. Three-time Black Belt Hall of Fame jack-off. So, Braille. You got it right that time. Good job. Yeah, not karate. I got it this time. Uh, He's the head of the struggling World Television Network, and he wants to sign Hogan. That doesn't seem like a WCW Hulk Hogan storyline with Ted Turner a few years later. I know. Dester Turner got the idea from watching No Holds Barred. I wonder if you guys got the idea for something else here, because Braille's idea is to develop his own concept, and they go visit his his stooges. Uh, I guess that's what we'll call them. Go visit the No Count Bar, where he comes up with his own idea Battle of the Tough Guys, not to be confused with Brawl for All. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Hey, here's the best part. You ready for this? The winner of the tournament is an ex-convict and former protege of Rip's trainer, Charlie, Zeus. And how much does Zeus win? $100,000. What was the prize for Brawl for All? I, I don't recall. The booking committee did that. Tony Schiavone, answer the fucking question. What was the prize for Brawl for All? $100,000. How hilarious is this when you think about it? Uh, so now there's Samantha, a beautiful corporate spy, and she's sent by Braille to seduce Rip. Um, is this any sort of correlation? Did Was there anybody around named Samantha that this is a wink and a nod to? In real life? No. That's what I know of. Vince didn't have a side piece named Samantha? No. I'm not saying he did. I'm just asking. Uh, so somewhere in here, Samantha falls in love with Rip, and Brill tries to have Samantha raped. No comment? I don't know what the hell you want me to say. Who book- goddamn movie. Uh, there's a famous scene here where um, Rip rescues her and puts the guy on (laughs) the handlebars of his bike 
and throws the would-be rapist into a tree. Do you remember this scene? I do. Your thoughts? Why well, have a Merry Christmas, and you can have a now Christmas. That's all I got. Eventually, um, Braille and Zeus crash a charity event for Rip, uh, where he's got his uh, kids surrounding him at his motorcycle, and they land by helicopter. It's a whole big scene. Uh, he avoids conflict, doesn't want to set a bad example. Uh, and then eventually, Rip's younger brother, Randy, and his friend Craig decide to check out Zeus for themselves at an illegal fight. And there, of course, uh, Rip's younger brother, Randy, wears a baby blue T-shirt with white lettering. So Zeus uh, beats up the younger brother and puts him in the hospital. And he finally agrees to accept Zeus's challenge. And so they have the big match and you've probably seen the movie. The ring collapses. I mean, don't you think that's a little interesting that the ring collapses here? You guys wouldn't actually do that ring collapse spot for what? 10, 12 years later. A little longer than that. Uh, at one point, Braille is thrown into the electrical equipment and it all explodes and, and the electrical equipment goes haywire and there's a big electrical explosion. Again, we've seen that on WWE. I find some of this kind of interesting. Uh, Zeus mentions in an interview with Rosenberg that somewhere in here when he's working with Hogan, Hogan breaks his nose. Do you know this story? Yeah, it's in the uh, final fight scene. There's a spot there where, and it's in the actual movie where Hogan blasts him in the nose and broke his nose. Uh, so there you go. Uh, that is your movie, No Holds Barred. It's worth mentioning uh, that it debuts on June 2nd, and we're going to get into that in just a minute. Uh, it runs 93 minutes. If you would believe what the internet says, it costs around $8 million to make, but nobody has a real number on that because the WWF finances it. And a lot of times the movie studios just release the, the numbers. Uh, but this was all financed by Vince and company. Do you know the real number, Bruce? Have you heard that? I thought it was in the $600 range. I mean the, uh, $6 million range. If, if it was 600, that was quite a fucking bargain. I know. Right. I think I, I had always heard it was in the $6 million range. Uh, the internet would also have you believe that it made just over 16 million at the box office. Of course it will grow on, go on to become a little bit of a cult favorite and be released in a variety of forms, VHS, Betamax, Laserdisc, DVD, and then eventually Blu-ray in 2014. Uh, I, I want to give a shout out. If you have this fucking thing on Betamax or Laserdisc, uh, tweet me at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. I would love to see a picture of that. And if you want to sell it, it would be cool to have. What a cool collectible. Uh, the movie debuts at number two, uh, and it's up against some stiff competition that week with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is obviously a huge deal. Uh, and it makes almost $5 million at the box office. We should mention right there that, that Indiana Jones movie goes on to make $474 million. So uh, no slouching coming in second there. Uh, Hogan wrote in his book that the budget was $8 million, and that's where that comes from. But $6 million, 
makes sense, I guess. Uh, Vince says that he more or less broke even because of distribution fees. Do you think that that would be accurate or do you think this turned out to be a money loser? And that's the reason he was kind of gun shy about doing this moving forward. It didn't, it sure as hell didn't make, uh, it didn't make a lot of money at first. And after all said and done, when you take everything into consideration, years later, probably ended up being a little bit profitable, but in the beginning, no, it was, it was a loser. So let's fast forward a little bit. We're going to come back, but, uh, in October of 97, uh, Jim Ross is, um, making some sort of comment about Hogan's new movie project that he was doing. And bear in mind in 97 Hogan's in WCW, this is right in the middle of the Monday night wars. And Ross says something uh, about assault on devil's Island by saying the movie, no holds barred was more like no profit allowed. And Vince quips Hogan promised me if the movie lost money, he was going to return his salary. I guess the check is still in the mail. Do you remember that conversation about returning your salary or whatever? I do remember the conversation from Vince's from Vince's side, him talking about Hogan saying if the movie lost money that he would would give his salary back, what he was paid for it. Do you know what that was? Yeah. Was he paid more than a million dollars for the movie? He was paid for the movie. More than a million? He was paid for the movie. He was paid more than a dollar. Less than five million. He did take time off of wrestling to do it, and WWE's business suffered as a result. We'll cover that in a minute. Uh, If you want to look this movie up on Rotten Tomatoes, and Lord, I don't know why you would, uh, it did not get the best reviews. What did you think of the movie? Did you see the movie before the grand debut, which we'll talk about in a minute? Uh, did you get like a private screening of it before you guys had the debut? Yeah, no? there were a handful of us. I want to say uh, probably 10 or 12 of us that went into Manhattan and had a private screening uh, director's cut before it was before the final, final cut. And it was interesting. What was the reaction? In my head, it feels like a lot of kiss asses who would say, oh, it's great, Vince. It was. It was really, it was, well, it was the excitement of, wow, we're producing a movie. We've got a major movie coming out, and it's going to be reality. So that there was an excitement about that. The movie itself was what it was. <laughs> Wasn't going to win any Academy Awards. So. Kind of a, you know, B-movie. That's what it was. Uh, lots of uh, negative reviews over on Rotten Tomatoes. They got 11% on the tomato meter. The audience score was 35%, and people just really ripped this thing. Um, and it had a wide release. You know, we talked about the debut a minute ago. It was June 2nd, 1989. But you actually told me before that you guys did like a deal right there for like a red carpet style event. Tell me a little bit more about that. We did a world premiere, if you will, at the Avon theater in Stanford, Connecticut. And it was for friends and family and people in the office. It was an opportunity to get reactions 
from folks coming out of the arena. Like when you would see a movie, a movie would open up on Friday. On Saturday, they would have commercials running like, oh, my God, I just saw No Holds Barred. That was the greatest movie ever. Hulk Hogan is rip was tremendous. And that's what we were looking for. We were looking to get those reactions so that on that Saturday, we already have them in the can. We've got people reacting to No Holds Barred. And and that was common at the time, to have a Friday debut and then the Saturday spots are essentially testimonials from customers right outside of the theater. There you go. So we did that. We didn't have we didn't have any of the stars from the movie with the exception of Kurt Fuller. And so we had Kurt C- Fuller. Kurt Fuller was Braille. He's the main heel character besides Zeus. He's a heel. So what do heels do? They cut promos on small children while they were talking about how great Hulk Hogan was in the movie. And Kurt went around and in character as Braille and scared small children and yelled at women and talked about how Hulk Hogan sucked and he was the real star of the movie and Zeus was going to beat him up in real life. Uh, It's worth mentioning that that dude has done everything. If you're not familiar, uh, prior to being cast here, he was on the Gary Shandling show. Uh, He was on Newhart. Uh, He did Red Heat. He did Jake and the Fat Man. He did Running Man. Uh, He did some Elvira. But then he was in Ghostbusters 2 that same year, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger for him. So he's probably the biggest star who was in this movie. Would you agree with that? Joan Severance. I think Joan Severance was even bigger than Kurt. She was a big star. Uh, That's worth, I mean, I guess that's a fair debate. I just feel like that dude has done everything. Uh, But he he did everything after No Holds Barred. No, I agree with that. I mean, he did uh, Wayne's World and Anger Management and a lot of other Big time stuff that people who are listening to this who may not even be hardcore movie buffs are probably in the loop on. Um, but no, you're right. Uh, Joan Severance did quite a bit. Uh, tell me about Joan Severance. Anything you can share with us about her? Did you ever meet Nothing. her or work with her? I never did. I thought she was beautiful, and everybody said that she was great to work with. But no, she she never came around us, and I never had the opportunity to meet her. She did stuff that you probably heard of. Lethal Weapon. Come on. Uh, see no evil, hear no evil, bird on a wire. Um, you know, one of your favorites, probably red shoe diaries. That was a big deal for you. I know. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead. I don't even know what you're saying right now. You don't know about the red shoe diaries. No, there's some kids listening right now. Hearing the loop on that. Um, so let's talk about, you know, the whole concept now of the movies out. And we need to get some promotion for it on the WWF side. Because one of the things you guys wanted to do, I'm sure, is market this to casual, you know, general population. But you really want to push this to wrestling fans. I mean, it's a it's a perfect opportunity to cross-promote, so to speak. Um, who is tasked with, you know, making sure that this guy can fucking do anything? Did anybody work with him from a wrestling side or is it just kind of on the job training? It was on jo- on the job training. He had the stunt coordinators and people that put the movie stuff together and appeared to be athletically capable. But no, there was never really prior to his first entrance into the ring in the WWF, there had really been no prior working with him in the ring. 
but they thought, okay, well, you know, doesn't have to do a whole lot. And we had we had Randy Savage that was going to do all the work, and he only had to do a couple of things. So it wasn't wasn't that big of an issue, wasn't that big of a worry. And besides, you can get Mr. T to have a match. You can probably get anybody to have a match. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Mr. T because in my research, uh, I saw that he had the same agent as Mr. T. Did you know that? I did not. Uh, so apparently, and some of this really makes sense. George Foreman, who did stuff with WCW. Oh, Henry Holmes, the same lawyer. Uh, Peter Young. Oh, Peter Young was the agent. Yeah, Peter Young and then Henry Holmes was the attorney. So Roddy Piper, George Foreman, Mr. T, Hulk Hogan, uh, and Zeus all had the same agent at the time, Peter Young. And that made a whole lot of sense to me as to why we saw Mr. T in the WWF. And then later in WCW, we saw George Foreman in WCW. Roddy Piper comes over to WCW. Obviously, Zeus is on both spots, too. I don't know. Maybe that only interests me, but uh, I found that interesting. Do you have any... Uh, store, stories or recollection of uh, working with Peter Young or having any conversations with him? I never dealt with Peter. I, I dealt with Henry Holmes from time to time, but but very, very few and far between. Uh, that was dealing with Hulk and his, his agents and his people. That was usually left to guys like Dick Glover, who was head of business affairs for us. The only agent that I dealt with was Barry Bloom that was Jesse's agent way back when, way back in the day. And Barry and I actually, through the years, became friends. But there weren't a lot of agents to deal with. And and if there were in that kind of a situation, it was usually outside of the wrestling realm. And we had Dick Glover, who was head of legal affairs for us at the time, that handled a lot of that. And Dick is... um, God, I can't think of the studio now. The one with um, Will Ferrell and a great guy. Just a tremendous, tremendous talent. Uh, Chat me up about the gear that Zeus was wearing because uh, this changed a little bit. In the movie, he had a different style belt buckle and different style uh, things on his wrist or wristbands or whatever you want to call it. Um, And he used the same kind of shoulder pad gimmick. But on his skit with you on Brother Love, the damn thing's falling apart. Who was in? How does that costuming process look and work and feel in eighty eight, eighty nine? The shoulder pads and all that shit were literally props from the movie, and movie props are made to look good. They're not made to function. Right. So when we had all that stuff from the movie realistically it just didn't hold up so we had to adapt and we had to change it and get some new stuff made for him that he could actually wear and walk around in and do stuff in but we we took all that off of him because he's a big impressive son of a bitch we didn't want to cover up his body anyway Yep, I can't argue any of that. I mean, it certainly worked for me as a kid. Uh, I thought Zeus was a monster, and so did the people in Des Moines, Iowa, when he first appeared in front of a WWF crowd. This would be April 25th, 1989, uh, and this would actually not make air, as far as I know. It may have. There may be footage out there on Wrestling Challenge, but I don't think it did, uh, where he runs off, uh, Zeus, that being, runs off the ring announcer, Mike McGurk, and a couple of the enhancement talent, 
And I think that was probably just to introduce him to the live crowd as to who it was. Uh, and this happens after they run a promo in the building, uh, showing you clips from no holds barred and kind of teasing what that looks like. So you're familiar with him. Uh, and then they do, um, the Gene Okerlund interview, which actually airs on May 28th. So this would be just a couple of days before the movie debuts, uh, on June 2nd. So they're really driving the debut here. And in this interview with Okerlund, Zeus says that he's the real star of No Holds Barred. He's bigger, badder, and he's going to kick Hulk Hogan's butt. And then, of course, they show a clip. But the thing that everybody wants to talk about and everybody remembers the most is the day before that, on Saturday night's main event, May 27th, 89. This is when Vince and Jesse are on commentary. They're pushing No Holds Barred huge on that show, including a couple of separate clips from No Holds Barred. One all about Hogan, one all about Zeus. And in the main event that night, we've got Bossman taking on Hulk Hogan. And Bossman at the time is managed by Slick. And Slick introduces Zeus, who comes to ringside, stands on the steps, and awaits Hogan's entrance. And as Hogan approaches the cage, we've all seen what happens. Uh, He beats Hogan down. But you've told me something off air, Bruce that that maybe wasn't as slick as we'd like to think it was, pardon the pun. No, it was horrible. Uh, Zeus is an actor. He had never been in the wrestling world before. And in wrestling, while people like to say what they will about it, you actually do touch your opponent. So when Hogan came out and Zeus went to do the big double chop that he was asked to do, he was probably six inches away from actually touching Hogan. It looked horrible. Uh, the audience shit all over it. We couldn't use it. We had to recreate that scene the next night, reshoot it, and make sure that uh, Zeus had an opportunity to walk through it earlier in the day to make it look a whole lot better. So we had to reshoot that and splice that into Saturday night's main event. Did Hogan know when it was happening how fucking bad it was? What's his reaction when he comes back through the curtain? What was Vince saying when the guys come back through? Well, Hogan, of course, Hogan knew he was out there and trying to get him to to lay it in and hit him. But Tiny, being an actor, never being put in that position, didn't didn't want to hurt Hulk. Didn't want to do anything that he thought might be wrong. He's an actor. He's used to you know you, not hurting you cut, anybody. You cut on shit, yeah. So, but when you're in front of an unforgiving live audience, that acting shit doesn't work. So we just, we knew we had to do it again. And we kind of scrambled and decided that we would reshoot it the next night. Because Hogan was out with Boss Man and it was a bloody match and it just, uh, just didn't work. So we recreated it and shot it tight, shot it in a different way and did it the next night. And that's what, that portion is what actually aired on Saturday night's main event. Uh, did, was Vince understanding? I mean, how does this happen, I guess? Because it feels like if this is a television taping, you guys would have had to be at the building way in advance. Why couldn't you guys have just walked through that the first time? Did everybody just kind of take for granted he's a ho- he's an actor, you'll know? Dude, you didn't do that then. Okay. Different time, different place. So you, you have faith. You think that you, you make a lot of assumptions. And... 
in today's day and age, it's not safe to assume. But at that time, we made a lot of assumptions. We thought he understood. We thought he he knew, and he didn't. And that's not his fault. Yeah, it was our fault for not having to walk through it. The retape happened the very next night in Omaha, Nebraska, at the Civic Center, and you guys drew a near sellout here with ten thousand three hundred fans. Um, and you also had Zeus as a guest on the Brother Love Show. Uh, and that appearance would air on May 27th of 89. Um, as we kind of fast forward a little bit, the next time Zeus was with the WWF was in San Diego. And it's hard to imagine. He's from California, by the way. It's worth mentioning they only draw 4,000 people to this on May 4th at the sports arena. Gene Okerlund does an in-ring interview with Zeus. And they're obviously doing this because we're about a, a month out from the movie. And it's just as much of an opportunity to plug the movie as anything else. The next night, though, he's flown to St. Louis, and he's back with you, Bruce, on the Brother Love Show. You guys only draw 3,300 folks. Uh, The main event that night was Jake Roberts and the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase. Uh, Somewhere in the middle of the card, right before intermission, I would suspect, Randy Randy Macho Man Savage pinned Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Uh, Fast forward, and the next time we see him is the 8th. They're running a lot of shows here, an A, B, and a C team. So there's lots of shows in those three days. Here, though, they're filming something for TV, for the MSG Network. And Zeus is back on the Brother Love Show. And he's doing his standard interview he's been doing. He's a bigger star. He's bigger and badder than Hulk Hogan. Hogan's a woman. He'll destroy him uh, as soon as he gets the chance to go face-to-face with him. The next time Zeus is mentioned is the June 3rd show. So that's one day after the debut, and they're really pushing No Holds Barred on this show. It was taped May 17th in Duluth, Minnesota. And this is when Slick's on Brother Love, and he won't commit as to whether or not he has signed Zeus. Was there any serious consideration to making that a package deal, Zeus and Slick? No, the idea at the time was because Hogan had been working with Big Boss Man and right. Slick was the manager of Boss Man that just to create some interest, maybe Slick was bringing in this monster to finish Hogan off. I guess my question is, was there ever an idea that we may try to put Hogan and Beefcake against the Twin Towers with Slick or against Boss Man with Zeus and Slick, any sort of combination like that for SummerSlam, or was it always from the jump? It's Beefcake, it's um, Macho. All I ever knew was was Macho and Beefcake. Okay. Uh, the actual debut, as we mentioned, June second. Uh, so let's skip around a little bit. And on June sixth in Madison, Wisconsin, they tape a show for July eighth, and this is the. F- the famous promo that I've been tweeted, I can't tell you how many times, with Macho Man, Sherry, and Zeus, all his guests on the Brother Love Show. And this is where Savage challenges Hogan and Beefcake to a tag match. And he says, one-on-one, no problem. Two-on-one might be a problem. But <laughs> he found somebody who could look over his left shoulder and his right shoulder at the same time. He found a human wrecking machine. He found Zeus. And there's lots of little comments in here that reference the eye of Zeus. This feels like it has you all over it. Are you in the back 
having fun with this. I was actually doing the interview with him on, on set. So I was right there, you know, I mean, come on. It it's factual. Conrad, the guy could look over his right shoulder and his left shoulder all at the same time. Dig it. Yeah. this a rib not a rib you're making fun of the guy being fucking cross-eyed you have macho man point at his eye and say it's the eye of the madness he can look over both shoulders not a rib not why is that a rib why is why is everything to you a rib it's not a rib it's a promo. I mean, the guy's cross-eyed. You're going to bring that out. It, it's, but again, why is it funny? What the hell? The guy's cross-eyed. So, so bring it up. Who wrote it? You, Macho Man? Who? Dude, hey, hang on, man. We didn't script stuff back then. It was just you, you, know, you, you and Macho Man did not have a conversation beforehand. Oh, we probably had a conversation beforehand. Yeah. Why, why are you making this difficult, motherfucker? Why are you going to tell some difficult? goddamn you, stories you, on the show? a goddamn conspiracy. It's simply the guy comes up with a great line at work. Fuck it. People pop. You're still talking about you it drive. today. You drive. Everybody's talking about it. It's great shit. So, I mean, what, what's the big deal? It's not a rib. I'm done. You drive. Go ahead. I ain't driving shit. Go All ahead. right. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy All your right. free fucking show. All right. Tune in on Friday at noon. We'll have ads. All right. Cool. See you next week. Something to rest with. Bruce Pritchard. Rock on. Say anything about Zeus now? What do you want to say? I don't know. Is that it? We done? We did Brother Love shows around the horn for uh, live events. Cool. I know it was. Anything else? Um, Houston Wrestling. Y'all, y'all worked a match in Houston? No. No, but we're going to talk about Houston Wrestling next week. That's another bonus show. <sighs> what else you got, kid? That's it. All right, then. Rock on. Okay. Okay. Dog. You gonna quit being a dick now? Why am I being a dick? I'm playing with you. Playing with what? What am I being a dick about? I'm trying to do a fucking show. We're to June. Okay. Is that it? Are we gonna talk anymore about it? Or are you fucking done? No, I'm not done. What? What do you want? Where? I again? I was just fucking with you. Fuck you and your mom. How's that sound? Okay. Where do you want to go from here? Well, I'd like to talk about fucking Zeus. Okay, let's talk about Zeus. Well, give me something. Okay, I thought we were going into the Brother Love live shows. Let's hear all about them. You said we did them around the horn. I said, what else? And you said, that's it. They were cool. Fuck. Well, goddamn. Ready when you are. I'm taping, motherfucker. Well, no, goddamn. We went around the horn. We did all the shows. Uh, 
The idea Boy, was Boy, these simply, details. These details. No, I just love on. them. I'm, I'm getting to it. The idea was simply to get Zeus and to put him in front of a live audience and be able to take him around the horn, get him comfortable in the ring, get him comfortable with his character, working in front of a live audience. So Vince had him go out and do the Brother Love show. And during the summer, it was an opportunity for me to go out couple months, get out of the office, go and do some live events, have a little fun, and kind of get Zeus used to cutting promos, listening to a crowd, and getting comfortable. But it was, it was probably the first time that I had to deal with somebody that was completely reliant on scripted material because he, he had never ad-libbed before. He wasn't used to improvising. He wasn't used to having to deal with an audience and, and getting that immediate feedback. So we had to pretty much put every single word in his mouth, tell him exactly where to stand, what to do when he was there. And if you deviated from that, he was just completely lost. And so the first few nights, we pretty much stayed on script and, and went out and I would introduce him. He would come out and he would give his scripted bit, walk around the ring. But we, we got to St. Louis and this was right about the time he'd been on TV for a while. The movie was out and he had a little bit of heat, big, nasty bastard. And he walks to the ring and I'm talking to him. Once we get in the ring, trying to tell him to work all the sides of the Ring, get up there, slap yourself, big man. Now go up on the second row, go work the other side of the ring, do something, move over here, move over there, do that. And he just stood there, didn't do anything. And when we finally get back to the dressing room afterwards, I look at him. I said, God damn, Tiny, I'm talking to you out there. You got to listen to me. You got to do what I tell you to do. And with a completely straight face, just looked at me and said, oh, I didn't know you were talking to me. So that's kind of what we had to deal with and in a short form. Was that hard? No, it wasn't hard. Damn. Tired of your shit. But, he, but, but you know, he, he, uh, he traveled. I, I got a good one for you. Zeus had, he wasn't a handler, but he was a guy, Dusty no. Wolf. Huh? No, I was going to say his name's Dusty, and, and he is often, he being pronouns pal, uh, Zeus, he is often referred to Dusty Wolf as Dusty Rhodes, which I found hysterical. I had this little guy, Dusty Rhodes, not him, uh, no. D- Dusty Wolf. Tell everybody about Dusty Wolf. Dusty Wolf was an extra. Dusty Wolf was a, a great hand in the day. He was from San Antonio, Texas. Wonderful, wonderful human being. Worked his ass off. For many years, down to Joe Blanchard's uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling, and he often did uh, enhancement work for the WWF. But he was looking for more things to do. We needed someone to travel with Zeus and kind of corral him, make sure that he got to the building on time, make sure that he got to and from the airport, made his flights on time. Because I guess uh, big stars and Hollywood people need someone to do that for him, And... Dusty was recruited to do that. And Tiny liked Dusty. Dusty liked Tiny. 
But one day, they got to the airport, and Dusty went to get the rental car. Pulled up, Lincoln Town Car, and it was red. And Zeus refused to get into the car. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is this a rib? This is not a rib. And uh, she says, what's wrong with you, man? I mean, what the hell? What are you going to do? And he says, I don't ride no fire engines, man. He says, what? He says, I don't ride no fire engines, man. I, it's, it's red. I'm a blue. Dusty being from Texas, not familiar with the gang um, verbiage. I don't know what the hell you call it, uh, but I, apparently. The Bloods and the Crips uh, are what you're talking the bloods about. Bloods and the Crips, yes. And uh, he was a Crip, which was the blue. The Bloods were reds. So he refused to ride in the red car. Now, here's the best part. Dusty takes the car back oh, God. and gets another car to which he pulls up and tiny gets in. Go ahead and ask me what color that the car was. What color was the car? Maroon. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So that's what we kind of got to deal with. That was that was our side of the uh, the tiny lister that we had just a joy dealing with from time to time, and and some folks had a little fun with him in hotels and would call his room and and do impressions, say, you know, yeah, and do horrible things that. Um, oh no 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 no! Listen, they were racist. They were racist, and they were very bad, nasty things that, that they that they would say, and you know, it wasn't cool. It just wasn't cool. But uh, he didn't take too kindly to it, and thank God he never uh, ever Caught found you. out who actually did it. Yeah, he probably would. <laughs> he probably, probably would have killed him. Yeah, big bastard, man. Yeah. How nervous were you? I wasn't nervous at all. It wasn't me. I'm the one that he called. When you saw him run down to the lobby to kill whoever was making the calls, you weren't even a little nervous. No, I didn't see. I didn't see him. I talked to him the next day when I heard about it. I heard about it from the front desk clerk. Where were you making the calls from, though? I wasn't making calls. Who was it? I'm not saying. It's but Bob. It was not. But it was not me. It was Bobby Heenan? Not saying. It wasn't me. He thought. You know who he thought it was? Hey. Why did he think that? I. I don't know, man. He, he thought it was Rooster, though. He wanted to kill Rooster. Did the person who called say they were Rooster? I don't think so. You don't, no, remember, I think that, you don't remember what you said at all? I didn't say anything to him. I know God you did. my witness. I never said shit to the guy. I know Vince did, or <laughs> Dusty yeah, right. did, or yeah, exactly. uh, Macho Man no. did. No, 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 no. He just, you know, he he had a hard time with the audience separating Tiny from Zeus, the character. Yeah, I mean, he even says that Vince put it out in the tabloids. I'm glad you mentioned the gang thing because Vince put it out in the tabloids. According to Lister, that he was a blood and a crip, he denied any gang affiliation. He also says that Vince put it out in the tabloids that he did heroin and beat his wife. 
and that he had five kids and that he had killed three people. And because he was challenging the beloved Hulk Hogan, he says in real life, he started to get death threats. Do you remember any of this conversation about tabloids or death threats or any of this? <laughs> no, no. He had people tell him that they hate him and they wanted to kill him, you know, that wrestling fans. I mean, that's just like Tuesday morning talk though. I mean, that's thank you. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, that, that was, I think kind of a fabrication on his part, but yeah, he did. He did. He, he did not do well with the, the wrestling fans that were babyface fans that hated a big nasty heel beating up their hero. Um, June 25th, uh, on the edition of, uh, primetime wrestling, we see, um, Gene Okerlund conducting an interview with Zeus that's interrupted by Savage and Sherry with Macho Man saying that he's going to stand behind Zeus if Zeus ever decides to get in the ring and that they had a mutual hatred of Hulk Hogan. Uh, what did Macho Man think about being saddled with Zeus? I say saddled with because he's been in the top guy position for most of 88 and at this point half of 89 uh, working on top with Hogan in a tag match in 88 and then now, you know, against each other in 89, he's in the main events. So he's still in the main events, but now he's got 300 pounds of dead weight. Randy didn't give a shit as long as he was still on top. Randy knew that he was the workhorse in that situation, that everybody was counting on Randy to carry the match and to be just that, the workhorse. So going in, knowing that, and knowing that everybody was depending on him, he was happy as shit because he was the top guy. He was the number one guy in the match that everybody was looking to to hold it all together. He, he liked that position. And so there wasn't any jealousy. There wasn't any – matter of fact, he kind of wore it with pride. Yeah, I can't even get this guy over. Exactly. Uh, June 10th of uh, 1989, he's working at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island, and they're doing an in-ring interview with Zeus and Sean Mooney. Uh, Zeus does his standard promo. I'm the real star of No Holds Barred. I'm bigger and badder than Hulk Hogan. Hogan's a woman. And then eventually he scares Mooney away. And Mooney says, what would you do if Hogan was here right now? Zeus says he would destroy Hogan. I don't know when we'll talk about Mooney again. You got any good Sean Mooney stories? Great guy. He was a newscaster. He uh, did sports and he did he did news. But he was a straight man. He was very professional. He was always prepared. Just a, a great guy. He's doing. Uh, he's anchoring in Phoenix, I think, right now. But he he left us for the reputable uh, anchor, I believe, in Boston, and kind of got out of the wrestling the, the the entertainment world. And I think for a long time he was accused of taking wrestling off of his resume. But I always found Sean to be a pro and a really good guy. Uh, on June 11th, you guys draw 4,000 fans to the Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And here's a name you don't see very often around this time. This time, an in-ring interview, the exact same one we've been seeing, is conducted with Zeus, except not Sean Mooney, not Mean Gene Okerlund, Billy Red Lions. Uh, what was Billy's role in the company behind the scenes, and do you have any good Billy Red stories? 
Billy Red Lions was one half of the fabulous Flying Redheads with Red Bastine, and they were a great tag team back in the 50s, 60s, and a little bit of the 70s. But Billy Red was a native of Toronto. He was involved behind the scenes in the office with Jack Tunney. He kind of ran the office in Toronto. So Billy Red handled, he was the on-air play-by-play or color guy for Toronto and also handled all the local interviews uh, for Canada. So when in Canada, you got to use Canadians. So Billy Red was anointed to be the one in Montreal to conduct the interviews. Uh, you guys continued uh, the Brother Love stuff, um, June 19th in White Plains, uh, Rosemont Horizon in Chicago on June 24th, uh, and then we would see him uh, really start to do the promos that would air uh, July 23rd. They were filmed in June, but they would start airing in July, building towards SummerSlam. And these are the famous promos that we've all probably seen before with Macho Man, Sherry, and Zeus. Uh, all with just a regular backdrop behind them, hyping up the SummerSlam match. When and where would those have been shot? Uh, Would those have been shot in the studio, or were they done at the shows? Who was the producer for those? What was the standard procedure at the time? We used to do uh, interviews for all all the local live events as as well as the national stuff. We would do those on the road when we did TV and we would have rooms set up for interviews. We had portable rooms that we would bring and actually set up inside the building. They were completely soundproof and, uh, guys would go in and knock out all their promos for three weeks worth of, uh, interviews. And Jack Lanz was usually the one that would produce all of that stuff. Uh, his next appearance is in Halifax, Nova Scotia on July 1st. It draws 3,500 fans. It was just an appearance for him. Uh, the main event that night was Hillbilly Jim and Jim Duggan against Andre the Giant and Haku. Main event anywhere in Nova Scotia, by God. So uh, here's my Alabamaism. I'm not sure I'm saying this city right, Bruce. I'm sure you'll correct me and make fun of me and call me a hillbilly. Uh, Worcester, Mass? Am I saying that right? Worcester. 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 W-U-S-T-A? W-O-O-S-T, well, A or E-R. So you're not the sure. First time, um, well, fuck. It's, it's spelled W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R. Worcester. There's no oh, H in there. Or A. What the hell? I didn't say an A. Worcester. War? That's W-A-R. Well, war, W-O-R. Worcester. How do you say it? Worcester. 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 That's the very first place, first TV I ever went to. Vince said, uh, Goddamn, pal, we'll bring you in. Uh, TV, we're doing TV in Worcester. I look on the map for W O O S T E R. Doesn't exist. Worcester. So, Worcester, Mass., yeah, we um, used to do TV there quite a bit. It was a beautiful building, so we did it often. But that's where we had Beefcake and Savage and, and getting Zeus physically involved, <laughs> which was kind of ugly. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Uh, Brutus Beefcake is taking on Randy Savage here, and Sherry is in the corner. Uh, eventually, the match ends in DQ uh, because Zeus attacks Beefcake. Somewhere in here, Sherry runs backstage to get Zeus. Zeus comes out. 
uh, and attacks Beefcake. And then afterwards, he has Beefcake locked in a bear hug. So Hulk Hogan comes in to make the save uh, and hits Zeus in the back with a steel chair. But Zeus no-sells it. And then eventually, Hogan and Beefcake clear the ring, armed both with steel chairs. So you guys are really trying to kind of double down on him as the human wrecking machine, no-selling a lot of stuff. And he's mostly just doing very basic offense here. Punches, kicks, chokes, a bear hug. Um, did you guys he, at this point work on any wrestling moves with him or just how to not hurt people with punches and kicks and think, well, he can't fuck up a bear hug. He he couldn't do anything. And so he can't fuck up a bear hug. Exactly. He's a big, powerful son of a bitch. So people may be able to buy if they can sell it right, the, the bear hug. But it wasn't like the son of a bitch could do a drop down tackle and then get it again. He wore these fucking platform shoes that were six inches high that he had a hard time walking around in the ring in the first place. So there wasn't a whole lot that he was capable of doing. So grab a bear hug, pal. Um, who is, the guy drawing his unibrow does he draw his own unibrow on or do you have a makeup person do that or do you remember both he would do it sometimes and sometimes he'd have makeup do it sometimes it was just absolutely god awful ridiculous and it, ridiculous and, and and it got to the the point of where he hated cutting his hair in the z so he just started drawing a z on his head he would experiment with the damn unibrow, make it bigger, and just have high points to it and shit. It was horrible. Why Why does Vince not micromanage that piece? Because a lot of times you wouldn't see it till they were right about to go out, and Vince was out doing commentary at times and just wouldn't notice. He, he wasn't the he wasn't the obsessive micromanager on all that little shit that he is now. Uh, who, do you remember whose idea it was to give him a unibrow? Cause the dude does not have a unibrow. Did Vince have a heart? Like this? Goddamn. Pal, he, needs a unibrow unibrow. Fascination. he does. Sure. Kind of like, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, what the fuck was that thing on Jillian's face? The mole, the mole. Yeah. Uh, so chat me up. What is this? What's his unibrow obsession sound like? God damn. If he had a unibrow, just a big, evil, bushy unibrow. He looks at she's got one eye going this way and one eye going that way. God damn, he's a wrecking machine. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, let's fast forward. August 8th, uh, we're in Oakland, and we're at the Coliseum, and we've got... A 14,000-person house. It's sold out. We're doing a TV taping. Uh, And somewhere in here, Randy Savage with Sherry and Zeus beats Hulk Hogan by countout around the eight-minute mark. And after the bout, Hogan body slams Zeus. Is there any concern about his ability to take this bump? Do you remember them trying to work this out beforehand and practice and him push off the leg or any of that? Or is it just... Hey, fuck it. We're rolling tape. Let's go. No, they did walk through that. They did walk through that earlier in the day. And by this time, Zeus had had, you know, a little bit of training. We had to get him in there because we had to get it, 
match out of him. Right. Some, and he didn't have to do a lot, but he had to do something. And he had to learn how to take a bump. And a slam is, is not that difficult, especially if you got Hulk slamming you. And Hulk protected him really well. So, But they had an opportunity to walk through it because otherwise you probably would have had him holding on for dear life. Uh, the next night, they're in Fresno at the Salem Arena. They draw 9,000 folks there on August 9th. And this time, Hogan with Miss Elizabeth pins Macho Man with Sherry and Zeus. Uh, after eight minutes, he hits him with a clothesline and a leg drop. Uh, and somewhere in here, Elizabeth slaps Macho Man, which is the real payoff that a lot of people wanted. And we get some physicality with Elizabeth knocking Sherry out uh, with her own purse. Afterwards, Zeus attacks Hogan. And then Beefcake comes out, and uh, he hits a double body slam on Zeus. So we're starting to turn the volume up, and that you can actually see on a couple of Hulkamania VHSs. Uh, So now we start to really get cooking for SummerSlam 89. And Lister has said that before this match happens, uh, and of course most of you remember this as the biggest pay-per-view uh, at the time that they had done, this is the second SummerSlam, but behind WrestleMania, I think in 89, this is the second biggest show. Would you agree with that? Yes, definitely. Uh, they dr- always, yeah, WrestleMania, SummerSlam, Survivor. But I think in 89 that this was even bigger than Survivor Series and Royal Rumble, in my opinion. Uh, East Rutherford, New Jersey, the Meadowlands, it's August 28th. There's 20,000 folks there. It is sold out. And Lister has said that the day before, um, Hogan flew everybody down to Tampa and they walked through the match uh, and kind of got everything down pat. Do you remember that being the case? Yeah, Pat was there. So there's a foursome, everybody who's involved with the match, um, and and Pat's there, and they're kind of walking through everything. And somewhere in here, I learned in my um, research that Zeus had said originally he didn't want to wrestle at all quote i don't want to touch no dudes i'm not into touching dudes do you remember there being any resistance from him about doing anything physical because of this anti-gay homophobic shit no um he was he was very anti-gay i do remember that but how do you remember that? Because he was just vocal about not not particularly being fond of gay. Bad word this, bad word that. Yeah. Yeah. But he but as far as wrestling and, and doing this, I never heard any aversion to that. He also says that somewhere in here he started to feel that he was getting a lot of tension from some of the guys. And you have to remember I mean, Zeus, as crazy as this sounds, he's on the poster. He's on the VHS cover. Uh, he's on a lot of stuff for SummerSlam. And SummerSlam 89 is a big show for the company. Um, and so anyway, there's lots of folks who aren't happy about that. One specifically he lists is Andre the Giant. He says that Andre didn't like him and didn't think it was cool that he was there and felt like he was taking spots and opportunities from other people and that he was earning money that really belonged to the boys. But he says that Dusty Wolf eventually helped smooth it out because Andre liked Dusty, and Dusty kind of vouched that he was a good guy. Do you remember there being any sort of Andre heat with Zeus? And would is that a likely story that Dusty would have been able to talk to Andre and kind of smooth things over? Well, it's definitely 
the fact that Andre didn't like any big guys. Right. Andre didn't like other people that were considered giant like. Right. Or larger than life. So I could definitely see. And Andre did not like Zeus. Didn't like him because he was a big guy. Didn't like him because he was an outsider. Didn't like him because he was put in the position of being on top of a wrestling event as an actor. So I can see all of that. That's I buy every bit of that. As far as Dusty being able to smooth it out, Andre did like Dusty, and they they had a good relationship. But I just don't see the boss wavering on his like or dislike for Zeus. He didn't care for him, and that that was a feeling I think for the majority of the locker room. There was resentment. There was resentment with Mister T. There was resentment with uh, Zeus. There was resentment any time an outsider came in and was placed in a prominent position over them. Yeah, uh, he even says, quote, you can't make no money unless you're wrestling the man. So if you ain't wrestling Hulk, you ain't making no money. Uh, so he believes a lot of his heat was because he was in that primetime spot with Hogan. And he even says, it was a lot of tension when I wrestled. Uh, and little stuff he may not have even realized probably got him heat. He admitted that he had his own dressing room, and if he ever shared one, he shared one with Macho Man. So that's kind of a big deal because at that point, the only guy who was probably dressing on his own consistently was Hogan. Is that fair to say? But Hogan didn't dress on his own either. But he could. He could, sure, without a doubt. I mean, the only really and truly the only person that had their own dressing room back in the day was Liz who didn't, you know, she didn't dress with the other girls and Randy always wanted her off by herself. So yeah, Hogan definitely could have and deserved it. Uh, warrior would oftentimes find a place off to himself, but with Zeus, yeah, he had his own, had his own locker room. He says specifically, and he never referenced him by name, but he said there was another big black guy there who had a real problem with me thinking that he should have been the guy working with Hogan. If there was going to be a big black guy versus Hogan, it should have been him. Now I'm just drawing two and two together. I think he's talking about bad news. Brown. Do you think there was any sort of heat? Do you remember ever hearing that there was any sort of issue with bad news? Brown feeling like he was passed over for this Hogan feud, this Hogan spot and feeling like it went to, it went to Zeus. I don't cause bad news had a hell of a run with Hogan. He had a really good run with Hogan. Didn't main event SummerSlam. Well, didn't main event SummerSlam, but I mean, he he main evented. For, he had a good three month run with Hogan. Um, I don't know, but but news. If he didn't like you, he'd let you know. He also says that uh, Jake the Snake decided to rib him, and he he referenced it. He didn't use those words. He said that Jake had to bring him down a notch or two. So when Zeus was in the shower. He throws the giant python in the shower with him and he flipped out and was, uh, all the bass left his voice and he was talking like Prince for a few minutes. Do you remember that rib in particular? Any other ribs on Zeus besides the prank calling that was maybe some racist stuff in this snake situation? I remember the snake thing because he was just terrified of, of snakes. That was my God. That was a general rib that Jay, everybody you know, got. You, yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody got it. If you, if you sold the snake, you were getting the snake. Right. So that was just something that, that happened. I would just say that overall, I don't think that the talent rolled out the red carpet for Zeus. 
Did I just say that? Oh my god! I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. You know what I meant. I don't think that they went out of their way to make him feel welcome. Um, there was a lot of jealousy, and there were guys that felt that he was stealing money from them. Outsider taking their money. You know, I, I feel like we should mention it here. Um, <laughs> whose idea is it to put Savage, Sherry, and Zeus in a promo with a fucking cauldron? <laughs> did you forget that? I did. You know, oh. there's two really fantastic pro. Well, three. The, the one on Brother Love Show always stood out to me. The one with the cage, which we'll God, get to I in a minute. Forgot about the cauldron. The cauldron is fucking hilarious. To, it's just out of nowhere. It makes no goddamn sense. What are we doing? Yeah, well, you know, sometimes shit just happened. That's some. I mean. I, I, I forgot all about that. So ha- Sherry, Sherry over the cauldron and, <laughs> and sucking it all in. That was some classic shit. But I want to, I, I want to say that that was something that like Sherry came up with. And I forget. I don't even know why. I, I couldn't even begin to guess why. You, so it's up. It's got a regular backdrop. It's from SummerSlam '89. If you have the network, you can see it. And it's kind of uplit for the lights from the bottom, just a regular yes. background. Mean Jean is doing the promo. Sherry's got on her full regalia, a, a, a silver sparkly dress. Macho Man's got his big silver robe with the black glasses on the back. It's awesome. Uh, mean Jean's in the tuxedo. Zeus is staring down at this smoky bowl. And they're cutting a promo here that just makes no fucking sense at all. This, I mean... Whose idea is this, and how, how? What drugs were they on? Probably on some good shit, man. Back in the day, um, this has got I, to be I'm, really good I'm, weed here. I'm willing to bet, seriously, that it was probably Sherry and the the wackadoo makeup and shit that she had. I mean, she could come up with some great wild shit. Sure. So, oh God, I remember going around in the cauldron. And just, <laughs> She was like the Wicked Witch of the West. But, man, sometimes talent would come up with some wacky shit, and we just would go with it, have some fun. Let's talk about the main event. We're finally here. Uh, we've got Hulk Hogan in one corner with uh, how exactly did Zeus refer to Brutus Beefcake? Do you remember? Brutus. No. Uh, Brut- it was Brutus Beefcake Barber, wasn't no. it? No. Beefcake Barber. Beefcake Barber. I thought it was Brutus Beefcake Barber. I mean, Brutus Barber Beefcake. No, he called him Beefcake Barber. Beefcake Barber. And I, that I did just watch. Um, yeah, he was the shits. <laughs> yeah, Beefcake Barber. Uh, it's very similar to Cold Stone years later. Thank you. Uh, so chat me up. What do you remember about this match? Of course, we know what the finish is. Hogan pins Zeus after a body slam and a leg drop. Uh, and somewhere in there, they hit him with uh, Sherry's loaded purse. Uh, the genius is involved, which I find kind of random. Is that just a favor to Randy? It was just a way to get somebody else involved that could take bumps and work a little bit. It was just a way to color up the match some and not expose that Zeus didn't have a damn clue what the hell he was doing in the ring. Um. 
I assume Sherry's wearing uh, a weave here because after the match, Beefcake cut some of Sherry's hair, but it's this long, ridiculous ponytail. Uh, but that's a nice little piece. Um, Sherry was always game for whatever. Is that fair to say? God, Sher- Sherry was more one of the boys than a lot of the boys were <laughs> the boys, if you know what I mean. She was a pro through and through. She was willing to do anything. The hardest working um, person, man. She was just a joy. And before the introductions, they bring out Miss Elizabeth. Hogan whispers something to um, uh, Howard Finkel, and he introduces her. So they're continuing uh, the build for this storyline with Macho Man and... uh, and Elizabeth, do you remember anything in particular about the match besides the finish, you know, with the haircut and all that jazz? I got to tell you, the, the, the most memorable part about that was probably the haircut. And yeah, that was just a clip on hair deal that was sewn into her hair. I just was thankful that it was over. Yeah. <laughs> we were done with it because the whole match was, it was Randy Randy working circles around everybody and keeping it interesting. Randy working circles, Randy getting the heat, letting Zeus come in and get those heat spots. But it was a testament to how over Hulk Hogan was that he could go into a match with, with Beefcake as his partner and work with a guy who had never had a match before in his life and the Macho Man. So to me, it was a testament to, to how over Hulk was that it didn't matter. And how great Randy Savage was that he made you forget everybody else in that match. He made you forget everything. You remember, okay, man, you remember the the finish and you remember that aftermath. But you can't really go back and point to anything that stunk. And that was a genius Randy Savage. Uh, And then after the match, of course, what are we treated to? And your best Vince voice. No holes barred. No holes barred. The match. The movie. Only on pay-per-view. Well, thanks for doing that. But I mean, after SummerSlam. In the ring. After. Well, then, damn, you're going to have to help me out. Because I don't remember. All I remember, the last thing I remember was cutting off Sherry's damn ponytail. And then what did he do for the next fucking seven minutes? Oh, must pose, pal. Oh my gosh. So let's fast forward to October. Bruce, after a movie comes out in the movie theater, then eventually it comes out on pay-per-view. But before that, oh, that would be on VHS video cassette. There you go. So we've got the VHS release coming out. So we start doing promos, uh, about this release. And so we have Miss Elizabeth cut some promos And then what better way to promote it than to bring Zeus back? So we've got Ted DiBiase here doing a promo talking about his Hulk Hogan match. He's got coming up on Saturday night's main event, but he's there doing this alongside Zeus. Uh, so let's fast forward. Now we're to the main event. It is October 14th, 1989. It's on NBC. It drew a 9.5 rating boys and girls. Of course we get our standard promo package at the beginning of the show. 
but then we get our title match. It's Hulk Hogan. He defeats Ted DiBiase after a small package after roughly eight minutes. There's lots of craziness in here. DiBiase accidentally hits Zeus with a clothesline. Uh, Jake Roberts appears and tries to distract DiBiase, but then Virgil runs off with Jake's uh, snake bag. Uh, and once that happens, uh, the match has its eventual finish. Zeus then comes in and does the old neck break twist on Hulk Hogan. Uh, the million dollar man puts the million dollar dream on Jake Roberts. Eventually everybody clears out when the snake comes out. So lots of craziness here, but we're trying to create interest for the home cassette release. And we're also trying to build towards survivor series. So was the plan after SummerSlam just use him for the VHS and then let's try to get one more pay-per-view out of him. When does that pivot and become, let's do the pay-per-view as well. Was that the plan all along or when do you remember there being the match, the movie as a concept? The SummerSlam, the SummerSlam pay-per-view did very well. Absolutely. So all of a sudden you're looking at it and you say, well, shit, we got something here. We, we looked at it as a one-off, but they bought it. And so don't kill the golden goose. Let's, let's go ahead and let's see what else we can get out of this thing. So you notice that we expanded his repertoire from the double chop to the bear hug to the neck breaker, which was very simple. <laughs> All he had to do was twist, make a twisting motion with his hands. So we were really giving him a hell of a move set. So he could have a damn near great match with anybody at this point. Let me mention here, when you said it did well on pay-per-view, the Royal Rumble that year in 89 did 600,000. Uh, WrestleMania 5 did 3,540,000. Uh, Survivor Series that November, which we're about to cover, did 1,320,000. SummerSlam did 1,920,000. So it was the second biggest by a wide margin, and it was bigger than everything in 88, with the exception of WrestleMania 4. So a really, really big deal. When you fast forward to 1990, it did more than everything. That includes the Rumble in 90, WrestleMania 6, SummerSlam 90, and Survivor Series 90. So SummerSlam 89 would actually be their biggest show for a really, really long time. Is that fair to say? Without a doubt. So you look at what you had. You had Zeus, Hogan. Let's recreate that and, and keep going with it a little bit longer and milk it for as long as we can. Uh, we did the Survivor Series deal with DiBiase that put him in the ring one more time, but we, we even covered him up even more at <laughs> Survivor Series. Yeah, so let's talk about that. You start building that with an October 2nd taping. 7,800 folks sold out the Wheeling, Virgi West Virginia Civic Center. And on here you have DiBiase defeating an enhancement talent uh, in roughly a minute with the million dollar dream, but then all of his million dollar team teammates come congratulate him. So you've got Zeus, the powers of pain, Mr. Fuji, the whole gang, uh, fast forward to the next day. We do this again where we're featuring the entire team, but this time with Gene Okerlund on the podium doing an interview. So we've got Zeus, DiBiase and the powers of pain. Uh, and we're doing all of this to kind of create some interest for survivor series. But Zeus is appearing, but not really actually wrestling or doing much. Uh, November 1st of 1989, uh, we go to another challenge taping. Uh, and here we've got DiBiase with Virgil 
uh, taking on the tag team champ Smash from Demolition. But Zeus interferes on the floor and then throws Smash into the ring. Uh, after the match, DiBiase puts Smash in the Million Dollar Dream before Axe makes the save and challenges Zeus to a fight. Zeus is held back by DiBiase and Virgil, and they do another promo with Gene Okerlund, building to their Survivor Series match with the powers of pain, DiBiase, and Zeus. So very nominal uh, physicality from Zeus as we start to build towards Survivor Series. But before Survivor Series, you guys actually taped uh, a Brother Love show that wouldn't air until December 16th, which is going to build towards the pay-per-view match. So on here, we see Randy Savage, Sherry, and Zeus back on the Brother Love show, and they start promoting the steel cage match for the match of the movie. But we'll get back to that because first, we need to talk about Survivor Series. We've already alluded to it. It drew more than 15,000 fans. November 23rd, 1989 in Chicago at the Rosemont Horizon Uh, What do you remember about this particular pay-per-view in regards to Zeus? Anything in particular stand out? Yes. Don't let him get in the ring too long. (laughs) (laughs) Hide him. And that was part of the buildup. Part of the buildup was, as you said, well, there wasn't a whole lot of physicality. There wasn't a whole lot of physicality because we didn't want to expose him. It's the old adage of you you bring the monster heel in, you you put him on TV, he kills everybody, he squashes everybody, you pay money to see the baby face finally get the comeuppance in the house shows. This was the same philosophy. On television, we were putting Zeus out there in very small doses. Right. And you would see him destroy Hogan. You would see guys want to fight him, but nobody would let him fight. And there was actually a little bit of backup even in the baby faces thinking, do I really want to try this guy? To create the aura that he was this dangerous fighting machine. Right. When you get to the pay-per-view, it was you had all these workers all around there. We we knew at that point, obviously, that we wanted to get to the match of the movie. Yeah, so let's say so who's on the match. To hide him. We've got Hulk Hogan, Axe and Smash, and Jake Roberts. So that's a pretty big time crew of really over baby faces hogan axe and smash jake roberts the million dollar team as we just mentioned a few times is dibiase or lord barbarian and zeus they've got virgil and mr fuji in their corner um and this match is actually a pretty long match it goes like damn near 30 minutes but after about three minutes they go ahead and get zeus right out of there for refusing to release a choke he just will not stop choking hulk hogan So the ref starts to DQ him. Eventually he pushes the ref and gets a DQ and that sets up the match of the movie. Um, at this point I could see how he has some heat because this guy is in a big time situation and can't fucking do anything. (laughs) Am I wrong? Yeah, but he's drawing money. I know it's, it's amazing, but it's, it's, that's what so fascinates me about this deal is the guy was a part of one of the biggest pay-per-views in history and the very first movie and Vince made it all happen. Now, of course he was super exposed in that SummerSlam and everybody knew, you know, kind of the jig is up, so to speak, but they still want to just ride it out and just milk it a little bit, which is pretty smart promoting. Wouldn't you agree? Hell yeah. So you want to get as much as you possibly can out of it. Which then you you go to, out of Survivor Series, you go to the cage. And you put the same guys back in a match 
that did the big buy rate. And only one match, but you get the movie. Yeah. So, so a couple of days it, after the Survivor Series, you guys start to pivot a little bit. The Saturday Night Main Event has Hogan start a program with Perfect and the Genius, which we've covered on the Mr. Perfect episode, which is one of our most popular episodes ever. If you haven't checked it out, check it out in the archives. Uh, but before we can really get to that, we've got to start working on the match, the movie. And do you remember anything about that taping in particular, besides the fact that it was in Nashville? No, I really don't. It, the, but the, I, the whole idea, now think about this, the, the match, the movie was, it wasn't live. We pre-taped the match at a television taping and it was, I believe it was at a nine ninety five price point. At that time on pay-per-view for a movie was about four bucks in, in, in that price range. A pay-per-view was nineteen ninety five. So we were we didn't have the expense of having a truck and having to produce an entire event, a pay-per-view event. We were able to tape a match at a television taping where we already had the production truck. We already had all all of that in place. We just taped one more match. Right. And then we held that off and we gave the movie for those who hadn't seen the movie. Here's your opportunity to see the movie for the first time. If you had seen the movie, well, here's your opportunity to see the huge main event from SummerSlam. But this time it's in a cage. And it's only nine ninety five. Well, by God, for SummerSlam we paid nineteen ninety five. Right now it's only nine ninety five. And why have a Merry Christmas when you can have a no Hallsmark Christmas? No Hallsmark. The match, the movie, only on pay per view. So you got them both. And this happens. I thought, I thought it was genius. It is smart. It's taped at the Municipal Auditorium in Nashville. Uh, there's a wrestling challenge taping going on, and they're going to splice in some primetime wrestling, of course. It's done on December 12th, 1989, and as we all remember, uh, it actually happens a couple of days after Christmas, December 27th, uh, and the match goes about 9 minutes and 27 seconds. It's inside a steel cage. Of course, we all remember Sherry was there. By the way, if you haven't seen this, you need to go out of your way to Google this. They do phenomenal interviews to promote oh, this match with the big blue steel cage in front. And there is one hilarious piece where Sherry is on one side and kind of climbs up and kind of gets lost as to what she's going to do here. So she climbs down and runs around the back behind the guys, but crouches down like you can't see her and then appears on the other side. It's fucking hysterical that not only did she do that, but that you guys thought, that you guys thought it was funny enough to just hear it. It's so tongue in cheek. I loved it. It was it was classic television, but that goes back to the guys and the girls being able to create their own stuff and being able to tell their own stories and let their own personalities shine through. And it wasn't somebody sitting there writing this. I know what we'll do. Do this. Take three steps up here. Wait, stop, go down, and then run behind and make a cartoon out of it. It was just something that happened. And it was caught on tape and forever immortalized. Uh, The match, the movie, is available uh, online. You've got to look for it. It's not a part of the network. I feel bad even mentioning that it's there. But it's there if you dig it. But, man, those promos are all over your your Google machine, and you should check them out. 
It's super fun. I, I do think it's weird that it's not on the, the pay-per-view section of the network. Why wouldn't they put that on there? Why wouldn't they put the movie on there? I guess they could make movie money selling the movie, but that match ought to be on there, don't you think? Oh, hell yeah, because it was a classic, and I I don't even understand why the hell the movie's not a part of the network somewhere. I guess because it still is airing out there, and they're still getting royalties off of it. So why have it available all the time? But a new, line, new, new Line Cinema may have something to do with that because they, they are selling DVDs, and I get that. But the movie ought to be uh, – not the movie. The match ought to be the there. So this is Zeus's last match in the WWF, and – it wouldn't be the end of him in wrestling. Let's talk a little bit about the rumor and innuendo out there. But first, let's quickly address he did work in WCW for a little bit. Uh, do you remember what his name was in WCW? The fuck was he? The Z Monster? Z Gangsta. Z Gangsta. He was Z Gangsta in 1996. He worked the uncensored pay per view, which is just hilarious. Uh, and when Rosenberg asked him about that, here's what uh, Lister said, quote, Hulk offered me 20 grand to hit me in the head with a frying pan. Hell yeah. You can hit me in the head with a frying pan for 20 grand. Well, there you go. How hilarious is that? I'd do it for 15. Uh, it's the shit like that. That just amuses me. I mean, yeah. How does that happen? Would you, would you let Hulk Hogan hit you in the head with a frying pan for 20 grand? Would I allow my company to pay twenty grand to Zeus to hit no, Zeus is not worth twenty grand in nineteen ninety six in WCW. Um he, Zeus claimed in that Rosenberg interview that he felt like he got the hip hop crowd to start watching the WWF. Do you feel like that's true? I didn't know there was a hip hop crowd then. There was. Okay. But do I- you I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. Like he he wasn't a part of that. Now what he's talking about in hindsight years later, let's see how your old man radar is here. Uh, what was your favorite movie? What's the most famous movie Zeus is in besides no holds barred. He made a movie besides no holds barred. Yeah. It's pretty big deal. I have no idea. Have you heard of the movie Friday with ice cube? Miss that one. Well, Zeus played a character named Debo there. It's kind of a big deal. That's what he's more famous for. Uh, there's some hilarity there to be had. I'll show you one day. Um, he, oh, that was that shit you showed me with Casio. Yes. Okay. Uh, he going to cry. That was funny. He going to cry in the car. <laughs> <laughs> um, he tells a story in that same Rosenberg interview that Vince got him a cell phone and covered all of his expenses and this is back in the early days, of course. And he was missing his girlfriend, and he would call her every night. And eventually, he had one bill that was fifteen grand for the month, and Vince just paid it, no problem. Do you feel like that sounds like a bullshit story to you? It does to me. I remember one time that my bill was three hundred dollars. <laughs> I was got, got my ass chewed out. It sounds a little uh, exaggerated. Uh, he also says that he routinely made forty, fifty, and sixty thousand dollar paydays. Now, a lot of folks may think that sounds like bullshit, but for Survivor Series, I buy it. For SummerSlam, I buy it. For the match, the movie, I buy it. I think that's all believable for those three. Wouldn't you agree? I would say that'd probably be in the range. He also says that Vince offered him the belt for a year. 
and then to drop it back to Hogan. But his agent, Peter Young, talked him out of it. And in hindsight, he feels like that was a bad career move. He should have taken that because he was supposed to make half a million for WrestleMania and Hogan would have gotten two million. But Peter Young talked him out of it. Your thoughts? I think that that is uh, wishful, exaggerating, thinking, talking to himself, maybe. I don't doubt that Vince might have, in his own you know, way, talking, Goddamn, pal, I can see you one day as the champion. And in his head, Goddamn, Vince wanted me to be the champion and to uh, headline WrestleMania against Hulk. There's a lot of that that goes on where guys feel that I was promised something because he said, uh, I could see this one day. Um, in time, rumor and innuendo developed that the original idea for WrestleMania six wasn't Hogan warrior. And it wasn't Hogan perfect, which a lot of people would assume would be the case. The way they pivoted to that Monday night, that Saturday night's main event right after, um, survivor series. But a lot of people think it was supposed to be Hogan Zeus and that ultimately that was changed because they thought there's no way they could put on any sort of a believable match. Your thoughts? The bloom was off the rose after Survivor Series with Zeus. It just didn't, you know, we knew that we would get the one more match and and probably be done. Uh, They might have considered it. But you but you don't remember that specific conversation. No, no, I don't. So there you go. Tune in WrestleMania six. We're also going to talk about the time Roddy Piper painted himself half black. I don't know how much almost racist stuff we can talk about here. Prank calling Zeus. There was a storyline where the million dollar man bought Zeus. He had a black manservant named Virgil. Now we're painting up Roddy Piper half black. More crazy shit that would never fly in 2017. This Friday on something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. You know.
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.